Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of The Checkup. My name is Kate Hickey. And my name is Hannah Scheel, and we are both part of Barry Nielsen's National Health Law Team. A recent Monash University study launched to track the mental health effects of the COVID-19 crisis has already shown a significant rise in anxiety and depression amongst Australians. 2020 has shown just how fragile our mental health is. Lifeline has gone from an average of 2,500 calls a day before the pandemic, which is staggering enough, to well over 3,000 calls a day at times. Lifeline Chair John Brogdon says it's been off the charts for Lifeline. The increase in demand is expected to last, and Lifeline expects that calls due to the pandemic will continue well into 2021. There will be no vaccine for mental health in 2021, he says. The government has committed an estimated $5.7 billion to mental health this year, which includes telehealth access and $500 million alone to respond directly to the mental health effects of the pandemic. On today's podcast, we are going to focus on mental health with particular relevance to how COVID has impacted many Australians in this regard. We are also going to speak about how COVID-19 has significantly increased the use of telehealth for delivery of healthcare and its advantages and challenges. We're extremely fortunate to be joined by Dr. Erica Penny, who is a clinical psychologist and lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Erica is also involved in a national university working group on telehealth training. Thanks so much for joining us, Erica. Perhaps you can start by telling us a bit more about yourself and your practice and what 2020 has been like for you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, like everyone, it's been a bit of a crazy year, I think. Um, so, I mean, in terms of my practice, I, I have been doing a little bit of telehealth over the years when it was still a fringe thing to be involved in. And so last year, um, the university that I'm part of said, you know, why don't we start a telehealth service? Do you think you could get something going? And I thought, oh, yeah, we could probably get a small thing going. And then, of course, March COVID hits and I was tasked with creating a very large scale um, telehealth service uh, for our training clinic for our provisional psychology trainees. Um, so it's been a very interesting journey going from little dabbling into it to really a trial by fire into this arena, but I'm actually enjoying it and learning some of the benefits that can come from this modality of working at the moment. Fabulous. Thanks, Erica. 2020 so far has been full of never-before-imagined human experiences. Toilet paper panic buying, social distancing, lockdowns, hotel quarantines, washing and sanitising our hands and groceries, a ban on hugs, the introduction of the elbow bump greeting, takeaway cocktails and Zoom funerals. As the year is drawing to a close, many of us are breathing a huge sigh of relief and referring to 2020 as officially the worst year ever, or in the words of Queen Elizabeth, Annus Horribilis. We keep hearing that anxiety and depression rates are skyrocketing. It is predicted that the consequences of that, coupled with the long-term psychological distress caused by unemployment and its myriad side effects, will see a big increase in mental health conditions. Erica, can you talk to us a bit about what you are seeing in your practice in terms of the specific types of mental health conditions that people are presenting with? 
And has there been an increase in presentations this year in particular? Yeah, I think so. And I think both anecdotally and clinically, as well as that's what we're seeing in the data. So in terms of our practice, we've been seeing more people with alcohol and substance use, more people with suicidality and self-harm, more people with more severe um, iterations of their mental health um, disorders. And even in the research, we're seeing, uh, you know, the the Monash study that you referenced, I mean, they've been saying that depression and anxiety has has doubled compared to 2019, that one in five um, people are saying that they have increased the amount that they're drinking every day. Um, We're hearing, you know, one in 10 people are are thinking about death and that it might be easier not to be around anymore. Um, And even in children, we're seeing a doubling of eating disorders, anxiety, depression than we had seen in 2019. So I think there's definitely an increase and also of just adjustment disorders, you know, so maybe not even um, sort of pathological disorders, but people who are losing their jobs, who are in huge financial strain, who are struggling um, with with not being able to attend funerals for loved ones. Um, you know, so we're seeing a lot of adjustment disorders as well. So I think there is a huge increase um, in both the data and clinical experience, but not just an increase, but also an increase in severity of some of the presentations as well. Uh, so just on that, We're constantly told that if we're struggling, we should reach out, seek the help. But we understand that due to an unprecedented demand right now, resources are really being stretched. Firstly, admitting to needing help and then reaching out to seek that help. It's it's so difficult for many people. What can you tell us about the current waiting list for access to mental health services and, and what's being done to address the issue? This is a huge dilemma. We've got an increase in mental health disorders, but it's not like this year we've got this massive increase in the number of therapists, you know, <laughs> so we have to really think about the use of our resources. So in the private practice that um, I'm still associated with, we've always been very busy. We might have a couple of people on a wait list at any given time. Now there's 40 or 50 people on that wait list who've been waiting for months. And that's not uncommon with many of the practices that I've spoken to. So I think public health are attempting with their limited resources to reshuffle staff and and get people in the most uh, the highest needs area I think private practices are trying to hire more clinicians to cope with that need so perhaps the beginning of next year won't might be a little bit easier and that we've got a whole new uh, a whole new set of new graduates that will join the workforce um, from all the unis across Australia next year so that may sort of help increase that um, the profession there one of the things I would kind of recommend is for people to hold in mind the stepped care model I think I think often medical professionals and allied health professionals, we just get used to the people in our area and we just refer to them. We go, oh, this is a really great person. Go and see them. But really think about the person in front of you. I mean, if they are presenting with milder conditions, perhaps put them on a lower step of care, you know, introduce them to really well-validated online automated programs um, like Mood Gym or um, My Compass, This Way Up. This Way Up's great because it's in English and Mandarin. Um, Mindspot is one of my favourite because it's got a plethora of of evidence about its effectiveness and not only is it self-guided but you can actually check in with a therapist on the phone so it just gives you that little extra bit of support and save the you know private practice referrals for people in that slightly more moderate or higher range um, of severity when you're seeing them. Yeah there's some great tips actually. Um, Mental health certainly seems to have become a real focus of the government this year as they recognise that many Australians are struggling Whether that is due to isolation, loss of employment or general uncertainty, most people have been affected in some way. 
how has this government focus given people better access to mental health care services and do you see that this is being effective in improving the mental health of Australians going forward? Somewhat. Um, <laughs> dialectically, I'd say somewhat. Um, I think it's amazing that the government has allowed telehealth to be a Medicare rebated item. That has really increased the access of people not just affected by COVID, but people mm. even pre-COVID who were just struggling with commutes to go see someone, being in remote areas. So this has really helped. Um, and also, you know, so that's going to hopefully last until March next year. And, and I would really hope the government would see a lot of the research that's coming in that's looking at the efficacy of telehealth and they might actually maintain that that Medicare rebate for those services. I hope so. And I guess the government has also increased mental health services uh, with psychologists from 10 sessions a year to 20. Um, and again, we can only hope that that might be something that would kind of remain so I think that is good. I think it is removing some barriers. I think we are seeing, um, you know, more people accessing services when they hadn't before. I think the government's not only done the, the Medicare kind of buffering, but they've also given, I think, about $7 million to Headspace, Beyond Blue, Lifeline, Kids, um, Kids Helpline. I think the challenge is, you know, when I was talking before about stepped care, we're kind of missing a step mm. in Australia. So we've got you know, um, these amazing evidence-based, you know, self-paced programs for mild conditions. And we have amazing private practice clinicians for, for moderate and maybe a little bit complex, um, with some complexity um, clients. And we've got really severe psychiatric, you know, hospital and intensive services, but we're missing that step of people who are too complex for private practice, but not complex enough for intensive hospital mm. care. And I don't know that these measures has really done anything to address that group of people. So I think that's a bit of a, cha a, a challenge um, that existed pre-COVID and has been exacerbated um, this year. But certainly I think for many people that, that some barriers have been removed to getting the care that they need. Yeah, that's, that's good. And I guess it's going to be a bit of a watch and uh, wait and see how that goes. Yeah. Um, We've really seen telehealth become mainstream during COVID when previously it was almost exclusively available for rural and remote Australians as a Medicare rebate item. No doubt, whilst this has great advantages, it has surely thrown up some challenges for health professionals and patients as well. Erica, can you give us a brief overview of what telehealth is, how it's being utilised and how you've incorporated it into your practice? Yeah, I mean, telehealth is broad. It can really in involve any kind of health service that's being provided via phone, video, online, email, chat even. Um, but the most common are going to be phone and video. I particularly like to use video conference when I need to with my patients. Um, I think it allows me to connect a little bit better with clients when I can. But I think for me, it's also I've incorporated into my practice, but not completely substituted my practice with it. So I'm still kind of thinking about about, you know, is this suitable for the person that I'm seeing? But I, I'm really enjoying learning more about telehealth, the functions telehealth can provide. And sometimes it even provides us some functions that you may not even be able to have face-to-face. -face. You know, I'm actually seeing clients in their everyday um, life. I'm seeing what functionality looks like to them um, in everyday life. So there's some additional information I can get from telehealth. So, um, you know, I, th I think we were already doing some telehealth before, but now people are just getting a broader and more a deeper understanding of, of the uses of telehealth. Um, so, Erica, we're particularly fortunate to have you with us, actually, because you're part of the uh, National University Group that is specifically looking at telehealth. So can you tell us a bit about what that group has been tasked with in terms of the telehealth training that you're doing? 
Yeah, it's it's this interesting um, meeting of minds that we've had really. It's been this rapid response task group that came together at the beginning of COVID. Representatives from all universities across Australia got together in meetings and we said, what are we going to do? You know, our students need to learn, our students need to learn this new modality. It's going to be more important for them in, in the future. And also some of us now have clinics where it's not safe to bring patients in face to face. So we're going to have to offer for training um, and services via telehealth, how are we going to do that? So a couple of us, um, and I work with some really fabulous people from Griffith University, the Australian College of Applied Psychology, um, Australian National University, from all different backgrounds of knowing, you know, really in depth about the research or having a lot of clinical experience or someone else has more experience with the um, automated programs as opposed to the, the um, therapy program. So it's been this really nice collection of knowledge. And what we did is we came up with recommendations for, for for the universities across Australia saying, you know, here are some guidelines you might use to create your clinic, to do it safely, to do it effectively. Um, we started putting training material together to teach trainees and supervisors and staff how to run an effective um, telehealth service. And more recently, what we've started doing, um, just because we've enjoyed working together so much and we started collaborating, is we've actually started creating um, some training for the Australian Psychological Society for clinicians um, looking at more advanced levels well, how do you adapt more advanced and complex therapies like schema therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy? How do we start adapting those to the screen as well without losing the effectiveness? That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so telehealth really seems to have taken off, um, but surely it's not without its limitations and challenges. There are no doubt liability risks which arise through non-face-to-face -face contact. And as health lawyers, we're obviously turning our minds to the type of claims that may arise in the future as a direct result of telehealth consultations. What, what do you see as the main risks? Yeah, it is like learning a new skill. Yeah. You know, it's not just doing the same work you did before in front of a computer screen. Um, I would think about a couple of things. One, I, I would continue to think about suitability. This is not just a one-to-one -one substitute. There are times where telehealth will not be suitable for your clients. And I think all clinicians out there need to continue to use the skill that they've learned, which is around clinical reasoning. It's one of the most important skills they use with their patients. They need to use it in this setting too. And if you're working with a client where you think, I actually cannot offer the adequate level of care that this person needs, I won't be able to do the physical examinations they need, or I won't be able to monitor them the way that I need to monitor them, then you may need to consider, are you able to offer them a face-to-face -face service, you know, in, in a COVID safe way, or do you need to refer them to another service? Um, so thinking about suitability, I think is really important. So we're still providing an adequate level of care. I think another area is being really conscious of security. So these are any electronic platform has some inherent risks um, around security. And so starting to become more au fait with some of that information. And certainly I don't think health professionals should expect themselves to be cyber experts. You know, if you work in big organisations, then start getting to know your IT department. You know, if, if it taught me, any, if March 2020 taught me anything <laughs> this year, it was know the names of the people in your IT department 
government um, because they have a wealth of information that's at an expert level. If you don't work in a practice like that, you know, I would think about whether it's worth your while to speak to your insurer, speak to a private IT consultation and find out, am I doing enough to protect security? But even in a basic way, you're going to see a lot of information out on the internet about just basic things you can do to maintain, you know, cyber security. Um, I think the other thing that, and one of the things that I kind of harp on the most about maybe with trainees and um, when we do other kind of training is risk management. It is different using telehealth as to being in the room with someone. You know, what I want you guys to think about is, you know, what if someone had a heart attack in front of you during a session? What if someone was harming themselves during a session? Um, what if you saw an accident occur during the session? Now, it's easy to say if they're face-to-face, well, I'm just going to call an ambulance, you know, maybe the police, or I'm going to call an ambulance straight to our consult room. If the person you know they are in their house and you have their home address on file, okay, you're going to call an ambulance to their home address. But what I'm finding is that people are not in their home to have these appointments. <laughs> this is the thing about convening with telehealth. Mm. People are in their work offices. People are in their cars. Um, People are at their parents' place. Um, I had a client who was in a park. You know, so Mm. we need to be, if I can kind of impress upon health professionals anything, it's at the beginning of every appointment. Ask your client, where are you? What's the address? Note it down, then continue with your appointment. You need that information to be able to navigate, you know, a a risk management like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's great advice and probably something a lot of people haven't thought of. I must admit, I hadn't thought of that. And also be friends with the IT guy because Mm, they have all the secrets. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Thomas. Uh, He might regret giving me his mobile number. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Erica, Medicare has indicated that audio-only telehealth can be provided, but only if video conferencing is not available. Figures we have obtained, however, indicate that many health professionals, GPs in particular, are preferring the telephone. Now, I know that you touched on this before, Erica, but um, we know that you prefer video. Why do you think some practitioners might be preferring the telephone and why do you think it's preferable or perhaps in some cases vital to be able to visualise the patient during the consultation? Yeah, I think it's it's important for us to all self-reflect on why we're making certain choices. Are we doing it because of clinical reasoning that this is the best choice for this patient or are we doing it because of our own anxiety, lack of familiarity, um, nervousness about whether we're going to get the cybersecurity questions right? Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people are reverting to the phone because it's more familiar, it's easier, they don't have to set anything up, um, they don't have to worry about, you know, whether they're doing things securely or not if they start creating, you know, using another platform. Um, You know, in, I think it was maybe September, um, Medicare released a statement that did say, you know, video conference is is the first preference for telehealth. Um, And I think that that's because there's a wealth of information you can gather when you're looking at someone, even if it's not in real life. You know, um, I can still see the quality of, um, you know, maybe their self-care or hygiene practices. I can still see, you know, posturally what's going on. I can see how agitated they are. You can even do, you know, walking or gait assessments with people. Um, you can, uh, y- you could even ask someone to take a photo of something if the, if the screen quality is not that 
that great. You could get them to take a photo of something on their phone. You can coach them how to upload it to the video platforms. You can be looking at it in really close detail, maybe even better detail than if you were in the room with them. Um, so there's a wealth of information I think we're losing if we only speak to someone on the phone and we're just hearing their report. And, and as you know, any health profession would know, not everyone is very insightful about how to report <laughs> what's going on for them. So looking for those other cues is important. I think there are certain circumstances where the phone is preferable. If someone really struggles with technology, you know, a patient mm. really struggles or um, older mm. people, I mean, this might be a preferable service compared to not being able to offer something. But I think it's about asking each of us having this really in-depth question, am I doing this because it's in the best interest of the patient or am I doing it because I'm a bit scared to get into video conference? And I guess the thing I would want to say is if you're just using the phone as a short stop gap for some patients, mostly you're working face-to-face, maybe that's okay. Um, but if you're starting to think that telehealth is going to be a long-term part of your practice, that you're doing it with the majority of your, your um cases, I think it's time to start really delving into understanding more about video conference, those platforms and, and telehealth in that modality. Yeah, that's a good point. And what about you personally? How have you had to adapt your communication style? Um, just before you mentioned that perhaps you've seen a patient, uh, they're taking the the call or the video consult from you in the park. You know, are there instances of patients perhaps having a more casual style and and how does this impact on your ability to then assess them? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I've had some interesting uh, <laughs> video calls and I've also heard interesting stories from all of my colleagues, the trainees I supervise. It, it's coming up everywhere. So I can't imagine there's a health professional out there who doesn't have some story of, you know, something that's happened, uh, some sort of strange setting their patient has been in. Um, so from you know, clinical experience, but also there is data to support this, both clients and professionals on average, you know, when they've done uh, research on this, on average, there is a more informal, more casual style that people bring to this context. And I think it's because we're just so used to using FaceTime and Skype and texting and email with our social contacts. So it's harder, I think, to get into that really clinical professional frame of mind in this setting. So I think it's important for health professionals to just, again, self-reflect. Have I got a really professional setup? Am I set up somewhere that's a professional clinic looking or, you know, bland kind of background? Um, and to think about how you're going to manage that from the patient's side. So for me personally, because I see people long term, I can invest this bit of extra time. So I'll do like a pre-meeting um, appointment and I'll say, look, I need you to kind of bring the same level of respect and, um, and you know, professionalism that you would if you were coming to see me in the clinic. So let's think about how to set you up to get the most out of our sessions. Where are you going to have the appointments? Are you sure it's going to be private and confidential? Um, you know, can we... Uh, you know, what sort of frame of mind do you need to come in? Is it going to be okay to do this sort of appointment at work? Um, but if you don't have the time to set people up in that way, then I think you could be even just adju adjusting your automated appointment reminders and saying, look, remember when you come to session, you need to find a private space where you can't be overheard, um, where, the, where you're on your own, you know, unless you have to bring a support person with you for, for health reasons. Um, and, you know, we ask that you bring the same level of kind of attention and detail that you would if you were coming into our clinic face to face. Mm. I just want to explore this issue of privacy a bit more, Erica, because I feel like um, 
it's perhaps something that people don't always think about on a video conferencing setting. And as health lawyers, we advise healthcare providers that they do need to be really careful about the software and technology that they use, as some is certainly more secure than others. Um, there's no doubt that telemedicine also provides far greater scope for data breaches than previously existed. Health information is also routinely targeted by hackers. In fact, I think it's actually um, the number one target of hackers. Um, so what are your top tips for making sure that the consultation is complying with the relevant privacy principles? Yeah, I mean, get in touch with your professional body and see their um, recommendations about how to... Many professional bodies uh, for doctors, psychologists, they, they're putting out recommendations of how you can comply with telehealth um, uh, laws and recommendations. So I think one of the biggest things people get stuck on is the platform. Uh, and there are platforms that are less secure and more secure, but it's also not as simple as that. There are some platforms that might be less secure, but you work in certain organisations that put extra security in place. I think the easier platforms is, I know the Australian Psychological Society have, have recommended that CoView, that's the one that I use, um, CoView, Neo Rehab, Clinico, Power Diary, these are all have higher levels of security. Um, I believe GP Consults is meant to be quite good, but I'm less familiar with it. But if you're really worried about privacy, you're, you're overwhelmed by cybersecurity, you're not sure how to manage it, what I would recommend is choose the government recommended platform, um, Health Direct Video call. You know, look it up, Google it. Maybe um, Hannah and Kay will be able to put it in the show notes. Um, but if you're worried about privacy, you know, use the one that the government recommends. It's a good tip. Uh, look, I think it's fair to say it's not all bad. There are definitely mm. some challenges. Um, and whilst this pandemic has been a huge worldwide challenge, not just for us, but you know, we've got to look at it from the global perspective. I think it has caused many individuals individuals and businesses alike to really rethink the way that they do things and perhaps reevaluate what's important. COVID-19 has perhaps given us all a little time and a little breathing space in this regard. I was really interested to read that in 1665, Isaac Newton had to work from home when the University of Cambridge had to close due to the bubonic plague. During this time, he developed his theories on gravity, calculus and optics. Now, this may come as no great comfort to those of us who have struggled to find clean pants during lockdown, Erica, mm. but it seems that flexibility, and I'm not talking about myself there, of course, <laughs> it seems flexibility in working from home is something that is here to stay, at least in a lot of workplaces. Have you seen on the flip side that these changes have in fact led to an increase in wellbeing in some of your existing patients? Yeah, I think it is very individual. We're seeing a lot of people suffering um, because of these changes, but many people are saying I'm noticing how much more compassionate and connected I feel to other members of the community. I'm able to design my own work hours better. Mm. I can put my child to bed, then maybe, you know, start later, spend some playtime, then go to, you know, work at a different time of day. Um, and people not having to commute to work every day now have more space um, to do other things. So I definitely think that there, there are some benefits for some people. Um, and I think if, if you are one of those people or if you could enjoy some of those things to really try to make the most of um, the elements that might be working for you. The emergence of telehealth into the mainstream is also making quality healthcare more accessible for a greater number of Australians who perhaps previously, whether it be due to economic constraint or remoteness, they weren't able to easily access those services. What do you think, Erica? Do you think that even post this COVID world that we're all in, is telehealth around to stay? 
I think so. I yeah. think this has legitimised telehealth in a way that has not been possible for years. Um, there are other professions that have better utilised telehealth up until now or, or tele-technologies up until now, um, but it has been very on the fringe for a lot of health professionals um, up until COVID. So I think it's legitimised it. So I think it is here to stay. I think a lot of professionals like some aspects of it. I think patients like some aspects of it. So again, that suitability fit. I think the one open question, though, is, is the government going to fund Medicare-rebated telehealth? Yeah. Um, you know, at the moment, it's up for review in March next year. I would very much hope that they will continue it. There's a plethora of research that's starting to emerge that's saying, talking about the efficacy of telehealth. I would hope they would find it difficult to say why they would pull back on that now. Mm. So I think it's here to stay. Whether it's Medicare-rebated, I think, is still up for a question. Yeah, fingers crossed, I guess, and watch mm. this space. So we can't finish without a word about health professionals who many have described as the true heroes of this pandemic. No doubt this has been a particularly challenging and stressful time for them as they have not been able to retreat to their couches like the rest of us, but have been on the front line of this pandemic. And that no doubt has been incredibly stressful. Um, healthcare workers are essential to the COVID-19 response. And do you have any tips for them as to how best they can protect their mental health? Yeah, I think I think start thinking: Am I in survival mode, or am I in in am I surviving, or am I thriving? I think the beginning of this pandemic, we all just had to survive. Particularly health professionals, they had to adapt quickly. They had to learn all this new information. They had to retrain in certain modalities. Uh, and if you're still in a position where things are that kind of hectic, maybe you're still in a survival mode and you're doing what you can. But I think for many people, actually, that that peak, we're starting to hit a bit more of a COVID normal. So I think it's important to start asking ourselves, do I need to stay in survival mode? Can I start thinking about ways to actually thrive and find a new normal here and make space for the things that are meaningful and important to you? If you're struggling, seek your own, you know, mental health services. Remember that stepped care model. It's not just going to see a psychologist or nothing. You can, you know, be part of programs like MindSpot. If you're just absolutely sick of being on a screen, you can read, you know, amazing books like um, Change Your Thinking by Sarah Edelman or um, The Reality Slap by, by Russ Harris. Don't be put off by the name. It's a <laughs> fabulous book. Um, you know, so I, th I think, you know, get support as you need it and, and start thinking about how to make this a long-term sustainable move for you and how to go back to enjoying some of the things that are really valuable to you about your home life, your hobbies, um, you know, connecting with people um, and just, I, I guess, moving from surviving to starting to put, you know, health professionals starting to put themselves first again. Yeah, that, those are some really, really great tips. But it's not just health professionals that are struggling. And so whilst we say, you know, if you really are struggling, you should reach out and seek help from a professional. What about for those of us who are just feeling a little bit anxious or flat? What are your top tips on how we can improve our mental health? How can we foster just a little bit more resilience and, and hope moving forward? Yeah, I, I think, you know, just go back to basics, you know, and, and I'm not one that's like, you have to do really rigorous exercise and you have to like eat really well. Oh, no, we don't do that. No, no, no. We're not into that. diet, you know. <laughs> 
don't aim for perfection. That will not be good for no. your mental There's health. There's no Great. chance of no, that, let me say. Me. No. <laughs> but, you know, are you getting some movement into your day? You know, are you um, eating some fruits and vegetables? Are you doing, you know, at least one thing that feels somewhat meaningful in a day? Are you seeing the people that are really important to you? And I think, again, that's that move from being in survival mode, being isolated, just getting stuff done, to starting to go, well, I need to survive like this long term now. So how can I just pull back and, and make sure that I'm doing a few things that are really important to me um, and, you know, t- having a few health behaviours, but certainly, you know, be effective, don't be perfect. Great advice. Love it. Love it. Um, Look, we just wanted to say thank you so much, Erica, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule and for sharing your knowledge with us today. So thank you. No worries. It's great to see you guys. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch via our website. We will include any resources and helpful links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you again, Erica, and thanks to our listeners for tuning into The Checkup. Checkup.